Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be talking about redistributions. How do they work? How did Australia develop our current system of independent commissions drawing election boundaries? And we'll discuss all of the new electoral boundaries being drawn around Australia right now. My first guest is Michael Maley. Michael had a 30-year career at the AEC, at different times running its research, IT and international assistance areas. Michael is currently one of the ACT coordinators of the Electoral Regulation Research Network and a member of the editorial board of the Election Law Journal. Hello, Michael. Hi. And my second guest is William Bowe from the Poll Bludger website. Hello again, William. Good afternoon. So uh, there are currently four redistributions underway in Australia. State electoral boundaries are being redrawn in New South Wales and South Australia, while federal electoral boundaries are being redrawn in Victoria and Western Australia. Similar systems are used in most Australian jurisdictions to independently decide on election boundaries. This system involves an independent body deciding on the election boundaries, uh, the boundaries being drawn on a set schedule, and a system where there's no role for the parliament to veto the final boundaries. Michael, why do all these processes matter? Well, fundamentally they matter because when people vote, they are actually engaging in several different parallel political exercises at the same time. They're choosing at one level a local member who will speak for them. They are more broadly choosing a parliament. Through that process, because of the system of responsible government which you have, they are choosing a government. And very frequently, they are also thereby choosing a prime minister. And all of those actions are taking place through the single act of voting for uh, the local representative. Now, If you are within a particular electoral district, uh, the principle that applies for choosing who will be your local member is essentially majority rule. If you only have two candidates, whichever candidate gets the greater number of votes is going to get elected. And majority rule is a powerful sort of concept that's widely accepted in political discourse in our society because it's the one way of making um, political decisions that is completely non-discriminatory against Um, everybody who is involved in the process. When you extend what we are doing from a focus on just choosing one person for a, a representative to choosing, in particular, a government, what we are looking for, again, hopefully, is a government which will have the support of a majority of the voters. But that is not guaranteed when your parliament is constituted around a system of single member constituencies. If you think about it, it is in theory possible when there's two parties for one party to win a majority in the parliament with 26% of the vote, 51% of the vote in 51% of the seats and nothing elsewhere. Now, that's an extreme example that's right off the edge of possibility. But in fact, uh, it is entirely possible for a party which gets less than 50% of the vote in two-party terms, to nevertheless win a majority in the parliament and therefore win government. And that's happened at the federal level in Australia in 1954, in 1961, in 1969, and most recently in 1998, uh, where the Labor Party won 51% of the vote in two-party terms but lost the election. This happens because of the way in which the boundaries of electoral divisions interact with the underlying distributions of party supporters. And therefore, the boundaries really can affect the seats-votes relationship and, in in these worst sort of cases, compromise the basic principle of majority rule. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with gerrymandering that we see a lot of in America where there's a deliberate decision to draw electoral boundaries to favour one side or the other. Um, but we also we have two different two different issues here that both affect the fairness of boundaries. One is whether boundaries are drawn in such a way as to favour one party or the other in the distribution of voters, but also whether some districts are larger than others as well, right? You can also, if you create electoral boundaries where some electorates are smaller than others, you effectively give more power to those voters in those electorates. Exactly. That's been possibly the most predominant form of manipulation of the electoral process in Australia at both the federal and the state level, much worse at the state level than at the federal level. The basic proposition that you encounter is that if if my seat has 100,000 voters in it and your seat only has 50,000 voters in it, 
then you only have to get 25,000 people voting for you to get elected, whereas I have to get 50,000 people voting for me. And in particular, if a lot of the small seats are the ones where one particular political party has its base of support, then it will get an inflated uh, representation compared to what you will encounter if every seat is the same size. And historically, what has, has been the case in Australia is it's been argued that if electoral divisions become too geographically large, that compromises the role of the local member to be able to get around the electorate, speak to people, um, hear their opinions, convey them to um, the parliament and the like. And so that was used as an argument for a long time in favour of having rural electorates with smaller voter populations than urban electorates, which advantaged the National Party and its predecessor, the Country Party, and it advantaged then the, the Coalition. There's a number of different ways in which this has been done over the years. In Queensland and South Australia, they actually had different zones in the state where they would have a different average enrolment for the metropolitan areas and the rural areas, the rural areas being lower. At the federal level, it wasn't quite as blatant as that, and they rather had, as one of the criteria for drawing boundaries, uh, the area of divisions. And for a, a few years in the late 70s and early 80s, they had a rule that said that no electoral division could be proposed that was more than 50,000 square kilometres unless it had a lower enrolment than every division with under 50,000 square kilometres. So there have been ways in which this rural bias has been systematically built into the process. Before we dive further into what the history has been of how this has changed, it might be a little bit good um, to go through a little bit of what the steps are now, like how the process works, which is very similar in most jurisdictions around the country. William, there's a series of submissions that an independent commission will hear from the public before they decide on maps. I think we've got four different redistributions at federal and state level going on at the moment, and that's where we are in the New South Wales state redistribution is in the first phase where they put out a call for just general suggestions. Um, most interestingly, the political parties uh, lay bare what they would like to happen and the high-principled reasons they would like these things to happen, but obviously if you read between the lines, political parties are always promoting self-interest and little else. So first, the redistribution process gives the public an opportunity to, you know, set out a bit, of, a bit of groundwork for the redistribution commissioners to then proceed to come up with a set of draft boundaries. Then there is a process in which the public can respond to the draft boundaries, sometimes quite forcefully. Most of the time, what happens after that is that there will be a revised set of boundaries that will take on board some of the suggestions and the objections that were raised in the first process without overhauling things too radically. And then you will have your completed set of boundaries. And that's it these days. There's no requirement, importantly, for Parliament to sign off on them as there once was. Uh, in extreme circumstances, though, the the objection can be so forceful that they throw out the whole draft boundaries and start again, and then you get a new process with a new draft followed by a new uh, opportunity to respond to the draft. And that was the case in Victoria I can't, in, for a federal redistribution in Victoria about 10 years ago. Uh, maybe those of you with better memories can fill me in here. I think they were going to abolish the electorate of Murray. Um, I'm a bit blurry here. No, I remember this. Uh, it might have been for the 2013 election, something around that. I think it happened in 2011. And so there was a first draft and then a second draft before the final map was drawn. Yeah, so essentially the, the reaction to the first draft was, you know, so overwhelmingly negative or so it was perceived that they, they threw the whole thing out and started again. So, you know, then you had a, a whole completed round of the process of submissions, drafts, final boundaries. Certainly in the case of federal redistributions, the way it usually works is you, you have suggestions and then you have comments on those suggestions. And that is often one member of the public commenting on another member of the public suggestion. And then there is the draft boundary, then there are objections to the draft boundaries and then comments on those objections. And then unless a radically different path is taken, usually the final version that is released, that's it. It's done. Um, and we will, we will get back to the interesting historical story about how it used to work back when Parliament had a veto over this process. But 
that is no longer the case. One thing I wanted to ask, um, Michael, particularly, I'd be interested in your insights as someone who used to work at the AUC. So the political parties, particularly the major parties, Labor, Liberals, sometimes the Nationals, put in a full map of the state, a map that theoretically meets all of the criteria, which we'll talk about in a second, for an entire state. It's much more subtle than if you were doing a US-style gerrymander because they don't have control of the process, but they make their own suggestions that subtly advantage their side of politics. Do those things ever have any influence over the actual process of of what boundaries eventually happen, or are they just an ego exercise for politicians? It's it's a very difficult question to answer because uh, to the extent that uh, the requirement uh, in the Act is quite clear about uh, the criteria that are to be used to uh, propose boundaries, it would be pointless for any party to put forward a suggestion which blatantly didn't satisfy those criteria. So any suggestion that comes from a party or from a member of the public, and at least if they've got their head switched on, is going to, in some sense, be pushing uh, the redistribution committee in the right direction. Untangling those sorts of thoughts plus their own thoughts into an analysis of how they have come up with their final uh, boundaries is really a very difficult thing to say without being a mind reader. But undoubtedly, the suggestions are read. Uh, One never quite knows in this situation whether the parties themselves make an assessment that it's unlikely that their own proposals would be adopted whole as bolus and therefore they put in something slightly different in the hope of getting a modified version up. There's there's a degree of um, game theory in all of this. I suggest what the parties put forward would certainly be taken very seriously. Um, And uh, it's unlikely to be wildly inconsistent with what the law requires. You mentioned criteria. Uh, That is the other thing that is important, is it's not just the process of listening to the public, but the commission is required to meet certain criteria. And usually the most strict criteria is around the number of voters in an electorate and the exact percentage uh, allowance varies between jurisdictions. I believe federally it's about 3.5%. You can have seats that are above or below the average by about that much. Well, actually, at the federal level, there are two different numerical constraints. The first is that a division cannot be proposed, which deviates from the average enrolment across the state by more than 10%. And that's an absolute constraint. The second constraint is that an attempt has to be made to identify those divisions which are likely to have shrinking enrolments over the the life of the redistribution and those which are likely to have growing enrolments and then use the 10% to put the shrinking divisions above the average at the the time the redistribution is done and use the 10% in the other direction to, to put the growing divisions below average so that they will come towards each other as time passes. Whereas if you drew them all to be exactly the same size, you would see them drift apart over the over the redistribution period. And that's exactly what used to happen before 1983 when this proposal was put to the Joint Select Committee on Electoral Reform by uh, Professor Colin Hughes, who later became Electoral Commissioner. So there's those numerical criteria, and th- you do see similar things to that in other jurisdictions, that usually there will be um, numbers of voters per electorate, but then there is a projected number of voters, which sometimes is three and a half years down the track or four years or six years. It depends on on the state. But that is a, a standard process to try and ensure that um, you are aiming for a target, which is obviously not perfect. And then the other thing I would say as well is that there is there's usually some other less um, precise criteria about how electorates should be drawn. The term community of interest is used a lot in this context that the communities should be connected to each other. They should have transport links. They should, uh, ideally, you shouldn't draw electorates with mountain ranges that split the communities down the middle, you know, things like that, that are more subtle but um, are important. And they're very appealing to political parties because if they want to try to persuade the powers that be that a boundary should be in this place rather than that place, uh, it's hard to phrase that argument in terms of the raw numbers if the raw numbers have been calculated correctly. Uh, community of interest, as as it's expressed in the Electoral Act, is a much more uh, malleable concept. And therefore, you see 
all most of the interesting suggestions and comments that come through in redistributions are phrased in terms of community of interest. And they might say that this part of Tasmania has 60% potato farmers, whereas the other side is only 40% potato farmers. How can you expect to put them together in the one electorate? The community of interest thing is nice and nebulous. You know, you can't enshrine anything like that in, you know, that make it too hard and fast. So you can always, you know, and with the, with the political parties distributions, you know, that, that, that they invoke that one a lot. Um, it's it's a pretty weak guide, though, to what the uh, redistribution commissioners are going to be able to do. And, uh, you know, in some cases, completely impossible to achieve. I think whenever you look at any at any redistribution they come up with, you can always tell which electorate was the kind of last one they drew or rather the one they didn't draw, the one that was left over after they had drawn a bunch of electorates as logically as possible. And then there'll be one which, you know, pretty much violates all of the criteria you just mentioned. There will be a mountain range running through the middle of it. There will be this vast disparity between a, a kind of rural area and an urban area. And, uh, you know, it's a nice aspirational thing, communities of interest. And, you know, when, when you've got, you know, a a major regional urban centre, which is roughly the size of a electorate, what it needs to be, then, you know, it's it's a no-brainer to, you know, have like over here in Western Australia, you've got Gerald and Albany, they're both nice cities that are roughly uh, state electorate sized. You know, it, it would be ridiculous, to, from my perspective at least, to run a ruler down the middle of them. But, you know, we've been talking about the United States. There don't seem to be any of these apprehensions there. You know, no one ever expects that uh, that that districts in the United States are going to be drawn on the basis of community interest. It's just absolutely accepted that this is a, that this is a partisan game to draw it in whichever way yields advantage. And, you know, you, you uh, end up with congressional districts in the United States which are fantastically oblivious to communities of interest. Electorates are not drawn to be communities for other purposes. They are drawn specifically to elect a person on an equal basis, right? So that does mean every few years when a redistribution happens, all like nearly every seat will have its boundaries changed. And, you know, local government areas are designed to have boundaries that should last a long time and don't have to have exactly the same number of people within them and should represent, whether they do or not, they should represent consistent communities. But uh, ultimately, the numerical constraints win out, right? So, like, I live in Sydney. Sydney has a lot of strong geographical boundaries around it, rivers, oceans, national parks, mountain ranges. And so I grew up in Campbelltown in the southwest of Sydney. That's the only place in Sydney where you don't have a really strong um, barrier dividing Sydney from not Sydney. Yeah, and down there, electorates like Hume and Macquarie get bashed about. MacArthur, I think I mean get really bashed about at, at redistributions. Whereas, you know, if, if the, to, to harp on about WA, because that's the example I know best, you can you can pretty much take it for granted that the Swan River is going to anchor the Perth electorate, the Fremantle electorate. Like in the, in the way the, there's going to be a quite major distribution in Western Australia for the federal seats because Western Australia is losing one of its seats. And uh, I think you can tell ahead of time that the coastal electorates are going to broadly maintain their existing identity. But when you go inland to seats like Hasluck and Burt, that's where the, the knife is going to be drawn. And it's anyone's guess how those electorates are going to end up. And you say it's anyone's guess, but it is also that effectively those are the places where the commissioners will have room, will have flexibility in terms of what they choose to do. So I want to dive into a bit of this historical stuff. Things have not always been like this. So if we go back back to the early days of redistributions and move move our way forward, how did redistributions once look? So at the moment, at least at the federal level, let's just talk about federal for the moment, federal redistributions happen after every election, basically. Uh, there is a calculation of how many seats each state is entitled to. If the state entitlement changes, then that state needs a redistribution and there is, and if a state goes seven years without having a redistribution, they have a redistribution. There is a third method that's never been used to trigger a redistribution, but those are the two main ones. And that effectively means one to three states or territories has a redistribution between every election. It didn't used to be like that. So, Michael, do you want to explain a little bit about like how did redistribution processes used to work before 
all of the changes that have brought us our current system. Well, to go right back to federation, one of the first things that the parliament did was pass a law uh, which was to define how the seats in the House of Representatives were to be uh, distributed between the various states because there's a provision in Section 24 of the Constitution that says that the number of representatives in each state has to be in proportion to the number of the people of that state. Now, the Representation Act, as it was first enacted, uh, basically set uh, census days as days on which the calculation would be made of the number of uh, people who were in each state, and that could be then used as the basis of the uh, determination of how many members it would have. And it also said that you could uh, have sort of calculations done in between censuses, uh, and that was used as the basis for doing these allocations. However, it was not obligatory uh, for a redistribution to come into effect once those allocations had been made because from the very earliest days the parliament had the power to disallow a redistribution which had been proposed. And if that happened, then um, you know, the, in effect the, the process became null and void. They made some changes to that in 1938 which basically got rid of the... Uh, reference to statistics between censuses and said that only the census would be used as the basis for these sorts of calculations. And was that every five years, like now? I think it was, yes. I mean, there, there was a dissatisfaction with um, some of the figures that had been put forward in uh, previously. For example, in 1916, um, they basically deferred an enumeration because of the number of people who were overseas in the First World War. And they were also worried about the quality of the statistics. Obviously, statistics gathering was not as sophisticated then as it is now. Um, so you had these, these provisions for a long, long time, which basically enabled long gaps to arise between redistributions. Basically, that all changed in 1975 when there was a court case taken to the High Court challenging various... Uh, aspects of the redistribution process. It's known as McKinley's case. And in looking at that, the court came out with a quite revolutionary ruling which said that it is not sufficient to tie the allocation of seats among the states merely to censuses, that in effect you have to do this determination in the life of each ordinary um, three-year House of Representatives in order to enable new boundaries to be put in place uh, at the election at the end of the three-year period if there's been a change. And they basically struck down the provision in the Electoral Act that, that worked together with the provisions in the Representation Act, uh, the effect of which was that no change to boundaries need ever be made. Was this the case that also said that if a state lost or gained an electorate in a, in a calculation of entitlement, they had to elect that that new number of MPs at the next election, whether or not a redistribution had been passed. Yes, that's that's right. It kind of forced the hand and meant whatever the boundaries are, you have to come up with a method to elect the correct number of people. Yeah, and basically what happened was that some legislation was put through in 1977 that said several things. First, it, it amended the Census and Statistics Act to require statistics on population to be available whenever they were needed to do this, this allocation between the states. Secondly, it, it said that if the determination that's made results in a change, a redistribution had to be directed. And thirdly, it said that if for some reason the parliament was dissolved before that redistribution had been concluded, then the whole of the state had to vote as a single electorate in what they called an election at large. Now, that, in effect, was intended as a deterrent to anyone ever dissolving the parliament while a redistribution was in progress because there were no rules about how an election at large would have taken place. Was it going to be an election using the same method we used to elect the Senate or like, or that, that no one had ever written down like what, what method would be used to elect? It was completely unclear. I, I recall um, uh, there were some attempts being made in the early 1980s to figure out 
from the lawyers whether there might be some sort of common law of elections which could be appealed to in the event that this apocalypse was visited on the Electoral Commission. Uh, but I think everyone realised that it was, was simply not something that could feasibly be done. It would be sort of an atom bomb under the system. And so it never happened. Um, but that, that was how we moved really from a situation where uh, there were long gaps between redistributions Sort of in the 1930s, there was a redistribution. In the in 1948, there was one because they increased the size of the parliament. Another one in 1955 across the country. Another one in 1968. Another one in 1977. So it, it was very much in those days a non-routine activity. Um, it, it was even allowing for the fact that electoral officials used to sit in the job for a long time. Then it was relatively unlikely that you'd do more than one or two redistributions at the most in your career. Or the whole country would change at once, right, as opposed to what we have now, which is um, you would never have, outside of uh, a change in the number of seats in the parliament, you would never have every jurisdiction facing a redistribution at the same time. Well, it's pretty unlikely. I mean, when there was an entire redistribution um, in 1984 to increase the size of the parliament, at that point they brought in the limit of seven years. So in theory, if no seat... Um, state had gained or lost a seat um, in that seven years, they all would have been redistributed again in 1991. But in fact, there were several changes. There's constantly changes going on because people are moving around from one state to another. Michael was referring to, you know, the, the apocalyptic scenario that might have happened in that period between the McKinley case and I guess the electoral reforms of 83 and 84, which was when the mini redistribution process was uh, legislated for. Now we've got this mini redistribution process in this evidently unlikely event that, you know, we're stuck with an election being held at a time when the states, their seat representations are out of alignment with what the census says. Um, would there be, uh, this has obviously never been tested, but I've always wondered that if we did end up with a situation where an election was held under a mini redistribution process, what would happen if someone came forward and say, wait a minute, this is unconstitutional. There is a massive disparity between the representation for the seats that are affected by the mini redistribution process and everybody else. And, you know, maybe that sort of violates the principles that were laid out in McKinley, that, you know, you, you did need to have a roughly equal uh, representation between different electorates. Well, I, I would question that interpretation of McKinley because one element of the McKinley case was to try to get the High Court uh, to elaborate a doctrine requiring um, equality of uh, enrolments within a state, and it actually refused to do that with Justice Murphy dissenting. Um, and... Uh, there's there's been a subsequent attempt to do that in McGinty's case, which also failed. The most the, the High Court has said that if, if it got to the sort of absolute extremes of having rotten boroughs like they had in Britain before the Reform Act, they might be forced to step in. Yeah, I was aware that it did that much, but I was also aware that it wasn't very prescriptive about it. No, it's not. The many redistribution provisions sadly have never been used and therefore have never been tested in that way. Um, but my guess is that the, the High Court, if, if it was faced with a challenge, would say, well, the, the provisions in Section 24 of the Constitution are paramount, um, and this is in the circumstances the only real way of giving effect to them, um, short of interpreting, interpolating some sort of doctrine requiring an election at large, which is not really in the Constitution, So, um, except as an extreme fallback. Uh, I'd be pretty confident confident the mini redistribution provisions to stand up to challenge. So can I clarify, in this old system, we, we've been talking a lot about when redistributions would happen and that Parliament had this right of veto, but there's no uh, case law, there's no constitutional requirement that says that we can't have malapportioned electorates federally. Obviously, the law says that we can't have that, but that's not a constitutional requirement even now. It's not something that's been elaborated by the High Court as a constitutional requirement, despite a couple of attempts to persuade the court to do so, uh, except that the court's given itself a little bit of wiggle room in the event that something really extreme was attempted, like sort of gross misuse of the provisions to create seats with a 1,000 
voters in them or something like that. I think if you, if you went to the point where it was, was questionable whether the parliament was directly chosen by the people, for example, I think that there's a bit of an argument there, but I, I, I don't think anyone's putting too much faith in that. Malapportionment, which is defined, sometimes you will hear people talk about this as if it is the same as gerrymandering, or they will use the term gerrymandering, but it's a bit different, where the number of voters in each electorate is significantly different. That has been the more common method of political manipulation of electoral boundaries in this country. What you were saying earlier, Michael, about uh, the federally, it has always been more subtle, right? That there was there was a little bit of of malapportionment at either end. But I would also guess that when you go a long time between redistributions, that tends to create its own natural malapportionment where certain seats become a lot larger than other ones. That's a factor federally. And then it's worth mentioning that state level, we have seen systems where a particular party has sort of locked themselves into power for a long time despite losing the popular vote in numerous elections. I'm particularly thinking of the Liberal government led by Thomas Playford in this South Australia, as well as the Bjorki-Peterson government, uh, the country national party in uh, Queensland uh, in the sort of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And you mentioned often it, the way it was done is that a certain number of seats would be allocated to a particular zone of the state, uh, urban or rural, and it would mean effectively that rural areas would be entitled to more seats than their share of the population would suggest. And the last one of those to be eliminated from a lower house was WA in the early 2000s, where Labor finally introduced one vote, one value to state elections in WA. But if you want to see malapportionment in the wild, you just have to look at um, the WA upper house, um, as well as the Senate, which is a whole other story that I don't think we'll get into, where um, in the WA upper house, rural voters, their vote is weighted significantly more than urban voters in a way that gives a big advantage to conservative uh, forces in politics. The South Australian and Queensland cases were different. In South Australia, particularly in the in the 1940s, there were very definite cases where the Labor Party won 55% of the two-party vote and lost. In Queensland, um, although it was widely perceived that the Bjorki um, Peterson government was kept in power by uh, this this malapportionment, that wasn't actually the case. They consistently won more than fifty percent of the the two party preferred vote. Queensland's a conservative state. The significance of malapportionment there is probably more in perceptions of whether the incumbent government was defeatable um, than the actual impact that it had on the. Um, the seats votes relationship. Bearing in mind, of course, that that, that rural weighting goes in Queensland went back to the days when the Labor Party um, was in power, and a lot of those outback seats were actually mining seats, which were a stronghold for the ALP. So the the patterns of zones changed, but it also also was the pattern of voting underneath the lines, as it were, which changed the political impact. You know, there is this sort of myth that Belky Peterson was kept in power by, you know, his gerrymandering, which is, as Michael says, not the case. Uh, I've heard it said that one of the reasons he did it was to, as a sort of projection of his image of power, you know, that he, that he was willing to, you know, outrage liberal elite opinion, as you'd say today. And, you know, it, it, was, it was a means for him to, you know, thumb his nose at the you know, the, the, the do-gooders and, you know, project his image as a strong man. But uh, also in relation to what Michael was saying back then, Labor did, in fact, have very substantial sources of electoral support in mining areas. In You know, there were lots of places in, in regional Queensland where Labor was, in fact, very strong. If anyone was being uh, disadvantaged by this system, it was probably the Liberal Party rather than the Labor Party, as distinct from the National Party. And today it would be very different. Today, Labor are very weak. You know, there are, very, there are very few of those remaining regional areas where Labor are still strong. So any sort of system of zonal malapportionment today would be a catastrophe for Labor because they're overwhelmingly a metropolitan party. And, uh, you know, I, I'd also throw in the point that we, when they uh, abolished zonal malapportionment in Queensland and Western Australia, they did throw a bone to regional areas in the large district allowance measure whereby if a seat is above a certain size in certain kilometres, it's treated as having a certain number of kind of ghost voters for the, the purposes of giving it its, you know, sh required share of voters. 
So particularly in Western Australia, the very large remote electorates still have you know, really substantially lower enrolments than metropolitan electorates. And uh, you know, to, to a lesser extent, this is also the case in Queensland. With Queensland, the zonal malapportionment would have had a big impact on the balance of power within the conservative forces, you would have to think as well, in that a larger part of the state was regional compared to some other states that might have been more urban. But it particularly made the Liberal Party a very weak rump on the conservative side of politics and eventually allowed Bjorki Peterson to kind of push them out of the out of the coalition and govern alone. So so I think it it maybe didn't didn't ever deprive Labor of government, but it certainly um made the conservative government more conservative and more focused on rural areas. So that was a system we had for a long time. Uh, redistributions were this occasional big moment and we would build up to them and they would be due and they wouldn't happen because it wasn't convening in the parliament and then they would break through. That's not how things work now. And Michael, you were you were very involved directly at the AEC in 1983, 1984, when a bunch of legislation was passed that created what we have now, the current system, which we've talked about what that system is before. But how did that how did that happen and how did we get to that point now? Um, well, the first thing to bear in mind is that uh, the Commonwealth Electoral Act was passed in 1918, but it wasn't very much changed between then and 1983. Um, if if uh, there were, it was very much an outdated piece of legislation by then. Uh, there had also been a great deal of focus on uh, electoral arrangements and specifically redistributions um, right through the 1970s. Uh, the Whitlam government uh, reflected Whitlam's own personal interest in electoral reform that went back to the 1950s and some of its premier legislation was intended to try to deal with this issue of malapportionment and by and large, try to remove some of what were seen as structural disadvantages for the ALP in the electoral system. For example, the, one of the things that Whitlam did manage to legislate was the reduction in the allowable deviation from state average enrolments at redistribution time to 10% that we mentioned earlier. Previously, it was 20%, but they had to fight tooth and nail to get that through. In fact, it was rejected by the Senate uh, twice and was passed at the joint sitting following the 1974 double dissolution. After that had happened, uh, the Whitlam government uh, tried to initiate redistributions based on these stricter criteria. Uh, they were all disallowed by the Senate. And in fact, Whitlam then took the maps and put them in legislation. And they were some of the trigger uh, bills for the double dissolutions following the dismissal in 1975. So electoral reform was very much on the uh, agenda of the ALP. And when the Hawke government came to power, uh, that was something that they were very much focused on. There was a belief at the time that uh, they might just try to bulldoze things through, but instead, very wisely, in my opinion, they set up the Joint Select Committee on Electoral Reform, which workshopped over a period of months a large number of different features of the electoral system, of which redistribution was just one. And what that committee came up with um, after recommendations from the parties and also after a lot of input from the then Australian Electoral Office was the system we have at the moment, which really has five key elements. First, the timing of redistributions is fixed by law and is not susceptible to control by the government. Secondly, as you mentioned earlier, the staffing of the redistribution committees and the body that makes the final determination, again, is prescribed by law um, in a way to reinforce public confidence in its independence and neutrality. We've also discussed a little bit the extensive provision that is made for public input into the process and to make the process as transparent as possible through the publication of suggestions, comments, reasons, all of that sort of stuff. Um, the, the fourth key element of the new process is uh, prescriptive criteria that are to be applied rather than having a great deal of uh, discretion in the hands of the bodies doing the drawing of the boundaries. And finally was the elimination of the parliamentary veto so that a, a, a governing party or even an opposition party in control of the Senate could not reject a, a decent set of boundaries because it didn't satisfy what they saw as their best political advantage. The effect of all of this was, was really to take the redistribution process 
out of the political arena and turn it into a routine bureaucratic exercise rather than uh, a highly politicized and partisan exercise. And in that sense, it's worked extremely well. Okay, so that all happened in the lead up to the 84 election. Uh, 84 also saw the number of seats in the parliament change. So every jurisdiction except the NT underwent a redistribution in 1984. We then saw a couple of states in 89, most of the states in 92. And then since 1994, we usually have two or three jurisdictions, sometimes four, uh, having a redistribution between each election ever since. So right now we have Victoria, WA, and the Northern Territory lost its second seat, which doesn't require a redrawing of the map, but was a, in one sense a redistribution. Have there been really any changes at all to this process since 84, or do we have pretty much exactly the same system that we had back then? There have been a few minor changes. Um, William mentioned earlier the, the fact that there's an iterative process of objections, that if the, the body that deals with um, objections to the initial proposed redistribution is called the Augmented Electoral Commission, which is it's, it's the original redistribution committee plus two members of the Australian Electoral Commission who weren't originally members of the redistribution committee. So it's six people in total. Originally, it used to simply consider any objections and then make a final determination. And that was that. But there were some concerns that sometimes this final determination was something quite different from the original proposal of the redistribution committee, but also something that no one had had a chance to comment on or perhaps raise concerns about. So uh, the Act was amended so that now if the Augmented Electoral Commission in good faith believes that it has made a major change from what was put forward by the redistribution committee, it can invite a further round of objections, which it will then consider, and that's that. So that's lengthened the process a little bit, but if anything, increased it in line with the basic principle of transparency and public accountability and public input. The second change was made was relates to that, that uh, criterion we spoke about earlier of trying to project what the enrolments are going to be three and a half years down the track uh, and aim for some sort of quality. When the original um, legislation went through, they were supposed to seek strict equality three and a half years down the track. But that got to the point of being so constraining that it led to the creation of some rather counterintuitive boundaries that didn't give good effect to community of interest. So it was argued and, and accepted by the uh, Electoral Matters Committee that that criterion should be made a little bit less strict, which is why we now have an aim of a little target that should be 3.5% either way three and a half years after uh, the uh, redistribution takes effect. Apart from that, it's been basically unchanged. So that's where we are now. Um, I wanted to just run through really quickly the redistributions that are happening now. Uh, South Australia has released a draft electoral map for its state boundaries. Uh, no seats have flipped from one party to another, although Labor's position has been slightly strengthened. It hasn't been that dramatic a change. Uh, you can go to my website to see digital boundaries of the new electoral map for South Australia, and Anthony Green has also written about it. Uh, William, do you have any thoughts about South Australia? Well, notwithstanding that no seats flipped in terms of whether or not they're notionally Liberal or Labor seats, now I imagine the Liberals are a bit unhappy about the redistribution. They've had they've got a whole bunch of seats now where the margin is less than one percent. You know where where the redistribution has lopped a couple of percent off their their margin. The other point to be made, and I think something we ought to discuss, is that this is the first redistribution in South Australia since they abolished their highly contentious fairness clause, where the uh, commissioners were directed to try to produce a set of boundaries that would uh, produce a majority for the party that won a majority of the two-party vote. This proved dismally unsuccessful in practice. Uh, I think the, the, the Labor government that was in power before the current Liberal government won three of their four elections from minorities of the two-party vote. The emergence of Nick Xenophon at the, the 2018 election is party which, you know, flopped in the final analysis, but for a long time it looked like it would sweep in as a third force, much as the Territory Alliance just failed to do in, in the Northern Territory. In any case, the principle of the Fairness Clause you know, among the, the fact that it tries to second guess what voters are going to do, which is always impossible, 
We completely assume the two-party system, and that's looking at an ever more dangerous assumption as the share of the major party vote declines. A couple of things to say about the fairness clause. Uh, the first thing is that one way of thinking about it is that it was inviting the, the Electoral District Boundaries Commission in South Australia to, as I put it, gerrymander for fairness. When you put it that way, it highlights that gerrymandering is actually a very blunt instrument. They were really being asked to do brain surgery with a, an axe. You can do gerrymandering by splitting up your other side's votes so that they're a minority everywhere or by packing their votes into one big seat. And you can go for that as hard as you like. You don't really care at the end of the day whether you win three seats or four seats as long as it's a majority. What the fairness clause was expecting was to be able to get to a situation where if a party got 49.9% of the the two-party vote, it could not win. If it got 50.1% of the two-party preferred vote, it could not lose. Put it that way, it's obviously unattainable because there's a high level of randomness in the seats-votes relationship. And to be more technical about it for a second, you get the greatest variation in the number of seats for a party for a given share of the vote when all the seats are marginal. So if you want to get an outcome that is even predictable in terms of the number of seats won by one party or the other, you have to have very few marginal seats. But once you get to that situation, the number of seats which are genuinely in play becomes very small and it becomes highly susceptible to targeted interventions, to pork barrelling, to focused advertising. Uh, And if one party does that better than the other side, they'll do much better in the marginal seats than modelling might suggest, and it it completely throws the the fairness clause out the door. So it was a misconceived idea from the very beginning in principle as well as in practice. Uh, There was an attempt in a private member's bill to try to introduce such a thing at the federal level too. Ian Wilson MP tried that about nearly 30 years ago. And it was fairly easy to point out that the only way you could even think about doing such a thing at the federal level is if you were prepared to redistribute the entire country after every redistribution. You obviously can't do a redistribution of the ACT by itself to try to correct the fairness of the nationwide seats-votes relationship. It seemed to me that one of the perverse outcomes of the fairness clause was that if a local member did a good job and build up their margin, they were then punished at the succeeding redistribution because they had to knock their margin back down to marginal range for the interests of the fairness clause. I can remember one MP who it seemed that kept happening to. In the 2018 election, you did have you know, what I call noble cause gerrymandering, which was what um, Michael intimated just then, because they basically let, they didn't even try in 2014. And this was hugely contentious because they had failed to deliver the election to the proper winner in 2010. Uh, I think they sort of said, look, to, to pack these electorates in such a way that we're going to fulfil the requirements of the fairness clause is, you know, practically impossible, involves second guessing the voters. And notwithstanding that we're directed to do this, there's enough wriggle room in the requirements for the redistribution that we don't have to. So they came up with a very conservative set of electoral boundaries going into the 2014 election, which didn't really change the boundaries much, even though Labor had won a you know unfair win in 2010. And then Labor won another unfair win in 2014. And the Liberal Party were up in arms. So this time in 2018, you know, the commissioners did what needed to be done to create a more level playing field. So what happened in 2018 was that you had another pretty status quo election result. But this time the boundaries had been drawn in such a way that it delivered a majority to the Liberal Party. A party can have a counterintuitive win with a minority of the vote, basically for a number of different reasons. One may be that a lot of its opponents' votes are locked up in very safe seats Uh, with massive majorities which are of of no great advantage to the party and it wastes their votes. Yeah, and that's a structural problem in South Australia. The other thing is what what happened at the federal level in 1998 was essentially um, the government won all the really close seats. If the government wins all the really close seats, that's not a structural feature of the boundaries and the underlying distribution of votes in the same way that um, massive vote wastage in safe seats is. And the Fairness Clause never really came to terms with this distinction or tried to draw the correct sort of 
inferences for how that would determine how they draw boundaries. Modelling the seats votes relationship is not a simple thing. Um, people tend to just, in Australia, to take a very unsophisticated attitude to it. They make up a Macarius pendulum, assume a uniform swing, which, by the way, never happens, and say, well, if we had a uniform swing, this is how many seats they'd win. Well, so what? The modelling that's been done in America is far more sophisticated, far more mathematical. And in fact, when the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters at the federal level in 1995 was looking at the possibility of fairness clauses, the AEC actually put in a submission and basically said, if we're going to be tasked with administering this, we are going to use Gelman and King's model from the Journal of the American Statistical Association, copy attached, which was so full of integrals and Bayesian probability distributions that it scared the bejesus out of everyone in the committee and they didn't touch it. It is worth emphasizing again that clause is gone and um, I think generally all of us who work in this kind of area agree that that is a good thing. So we are expecting a draft boundary from the New South Wales state redistribution any time now, uh, and that will kick in at the 2023 state election. And then we are also expecting redistributions from Victoria and WA. So Victoria is gaining a 39th seat and Western Australia is losing its 16th seat that it gained in the redistribution before the 2016 election. And with that, we're going to finish up here. Uh, there's going to be a lot more coverage of redistributions on my website and William on your website too, I'm sure, as they go on. And we might cover them again on the podcast as the opportunity arises. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, William and Michael, for joining me. Thanks, William. Thank you. And thanks, Michael. Thanks for having us. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter at the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christa Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>